Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In this episode, we're bringing you a very special live interview with the award-winning author Anne Enright. Anne has just released her seventh novel, Actress, and to celebrate its release, she joined Cathy Sheridan on stage at the Liberty Hall Theatre for a conversation about the writing process, feminism, motherhood, and so much more. Thank you to everyone who came out to support Anne Enright and Cathy Sheridan on what was a particularly wet and blustery night in Dublin city centre. But we had a packed audience and there was a great atmosphere for what really was a fascinating conversation. I know you're going to enjoy this. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Stop it. What a great big audience we have. Um, good evening and a big warm welcome to everyone here at the Liberty Hall Theatre. Thank you for braving the February cold and storms and whatever viruses are out there. Don't want to frighten any of you. <laughs> Just wash your hands. Um, I'm Cathy Sheridan from the Irish Times, and I'm so happy to be here to celebrate the launch of actress Anne Enright's seventh novel. We're recording this conversation for a special episode of the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Um, and afterwards, we'll be throwing open the floor to you for questions. And since I tend to judge the success of these events by audience engagement, uh, I'd like you to just come at us. I'll come at her. Actually. Stop. Um, as you know, Anne Enright is one of Ireland's greatest living authors with a career spanning 30 years, short stories, seven novels now, and an extraordinary work of non-fiction, which I commend to you all about becoming a mother called Making Babies. It's 16 years old. <laughs> I just want to use one line from it to show how on Penelope Leach it is. Do any of you remember Penelope Leach? <laughs> <laughs> I remember my husband throwing her book out the window because I've become so addicted to her. Anyway, there's a line in it where Anne says, we do not choose sometimes to be occupied by this other creature. That's how on Penelope Leach it is. But it also means, Anne Enright, you cannot put her in a box. Uh, the importance of choice, all those things. She is nuance personified, and yet she has the straight gaze of somebody who scares me slightly. Um, early on in her career, she decided she could write about anything because, as she said herself, nobody who considered themselves a keeper of the canon would hear it. 
Well, ha, the joke's on her, because in 2007, The Gathering won her the Man Booker Prize. That was a novel about siblings trying to conceal the awful truth about their brother's suicide from their mother. But the thing about all Anne Enright's work is that in one way or another, it is steeped in family, bodies, gender, sex, motherhood, those elements of our makeup which shapes societies, no matter how much some people like it or don't. Uh, when she was dubbed our first official laureate, the public face of our country's literature, basically, a few years ago, she made gender imbalance a theme, which on the one hand seems a bit predictable, and yet there is nothing remotely derivative about her views on that or anything. In fact, as we'll discuss later, she's a kind of a reluctant feminist, which makes her very interesting to me. Uh, she combines that scarily sharp gaze, which she's pinning on me now, with something else that's desperately lacking in public discourse now, which is nuance. You can never scan an Anne Enright novel because you'll miss something vital that has been slipped into a paragraph. Now, Actress, the novel that brings us all together tonight, does that thing that it's fair to say a lot of the keepers of the canon used to be extremely sniffy about until people like Anne started winning prizes. Uh, and up to quite recently, a wonderful revolution that started happening. Um, I don't want to do spoilers, but let's just say Anne Enright was writing about bad sex and the female gaze on sexual power and powerlessness for decades before Me Too was ever heard of. And apart from all that, as the Financial Times reviewer wrote in another glowing review of actress, Enright crafts superb sentences, some of which you want to slip into your pocket like stones. Will you please welcome Anne Enright? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> she is going to begin with a short reading from Actress, and she'll do another one later on. Uh, but this describes the amazing Catherine O'Dell, who has taken up residence in my head and will in yours if you haven't read the novel already. Yes, yeah, just to give you a taste of the voice. Um, thank you very much, Kathy, for, for that introduction. Just a bit scary yourself. <laughs> <clears throat> People ask me, what was she like? And I try to figure out if they mean as a normal person, what was she like in her slippers eating toast and marmalade? Or what was she like as a mother? Or what was she like as an actress? We did not use the word star. Mostly though they mean, what was she like before she went crazy? As though their own mother might turn overnight like a bottle of milk left out of the fridge. Or they might themselves be secretly askew. Something happens as they talk to me. I'm used to it now. It works in them slowly. A growing wonder, as though recognising an old flame after many years. You have her eyes, they say. People loved her. Strangers, I mean. I saw them looking at her and nodding, though they failed to hear a single word she said. And yes, I have her eyes. At least I have the same colour eyes as my mother. A hazel that, in her case, people like to call green. Indeed, whole paragraphs were penned about bog and field when journalists looked into my mother's eyes. And we have the same way of blinking, slow and fond, as though thinking of something very beautiful. I know this because she taught me how to do it. Think about cherry blossoms, she said, drifting on the wind. And sometimes I do. 
Such were the gifts I got from Catherine O'Dell, star of stage and screen. How are you, O oh mother of mine? Never better, she used to say. And the blossoms drifted by the tree load when she looked at me. There was a man in the kitchen in Dartmouth Square where everything important in my life seems to have happened who knew someone who had slept with Marilyn and never washed, he said. Some evening in my childhood, I came down the stairs to hear this news. And he was such a nice old man, it stained me ever since. So when people ask, what was she like? I have an urge to say, pretty clean, actually. And then to add, I mean, by the standards of the day. And <laughs> okay. um, I, I described her as a reluctant feminist. <laughs> Um, and I think you've been on a bit of a journey. It's a great line in, in Actress, uh, where the narrator, Nora, who is, who is the actress's daughter, who's writing her life story. Nora appears to be self-effacing, but is no one's patsy. But she observes that the film producer, who's a major character in the book, is one of those men who believe it is their interest which makes something interesting. Which I think you have to think about for a minute. It's such a fantastically neat sentence and yet encompasses so many things. And one thing, another thing Anne also said, not in the novel, but if a man writes the cat sat on the mat, we admire the economy of his prose. <laughs> if a woman does, we find it banal. So I do think that on the one hand, if you've been listening to Anne in the last while, you'll hear her talk kind of reluctantly about how she was sucked into sort of talking about feminism and, and sort of having to sort of do this, say those words which she was clearly uncomfortable about to begin with. And yet, here you are. You are scorching. And here I am. That's the other thing. Um, because when I started off, if you... Uh, uh, well, here I am. I, I'm here because I'm a novelist, or, but I'm here sort of intellectually and, and, and in a real sense because uh, my principal work is creative. So I'm a novelist and a short story writer, and as that, I can keep moving. I can... Uh, I can, I can keep moving. Once you start to talk p politics or polemic, you're into a different kind of public discourse and you can be pinned down. And when I started out 30 years ago, the feminists of that generation who were talking in public were being excoriated or were being argued against or were being demeaned or dismissed. And it just didn't seem to me like a way, a good way to survive. It wasn't a long-term strategy, nor did I think that that was where I could be most useful? That's a very pious way of putting it. Either I was scared or I was sensible. One or the other. But, I, but in all of those years and through all, that, all those shifting changes and waves of feminism that have happened in Ireland and all the wonderful changes we've seen, I'm at, I'm at the desk making things up, which is an airy, fairy sort of silly thing to be doing. Um, uh, and, but I'm trying to I'm trying to catch and uh, convey other necessities. You are probably one of the most fearless people I know. Uh, so I don't get the bit about being too scared to do this. Uh, you are also in a in a in a situation where you were experiencing what it was like to be a woman in very much a male literary canon. And in one of the pieces you wrote, you said, I found a reluctance among men to read or review books by women, and it was hard not to see an aversion to the feminine there. Who writes the important story? Who says it is important? 
Both these questions are questions about being in charge because the game of literary reputation, reputation is also a game about authority. That's serious stuff for somebody yes. who says, I, 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 I think, was that written last year? That was written last year. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s, so I wouldn't have been able to assume authority uh, early on in my creative life, nor when I'm working creatively, is it an, an authoritative act? Because creativity is often subversive and elusive and anti-authoritarian, and it just goes wherever it wants to. And that's one of the great things about writing fiction, because you're in this fantasy world, you're, you're in the zone of the unconscious, as well as in society and wherever else, you, you're free. You're not so free in, in, uh, when, when you're either, when you're talking about authority. Um, you're not so free in the critical discourse, which is a slightly different to the, the imaginative discourse. The thing about women talking and women being on and, the women, uh, uh, and women making their lives examples of the need for change, as women have been doing constantly in Ireland, is that it takes it out of them. It takes it out of you. And that was one of the things about Catherine O'Dell in the book, is she's on. She's on display. She's emblematic. She's a figure. She represents whatever people want her to represent in one kind of bullshit cliche story or another bullshit cliche story that she's acting out on stage. And it wears her down. And it also, it also begs the question of what's, what's in the... What's in the centre of all of that when she's so faceted one way or the other? But so, so, so the, the, the text, the story is my recourse. And then I come out, like out of my little house, and I say a few things and then I run away again. <laughs> You've said some very serious things in the last... And then, then people try and catch me. And oh, no. <laughs> I make me explain just, them. And, just, you know, I'm just wondering if, 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 if you just suddenly went into a little fit of rage ooh. In, in recent years. I think you did. Yeah. You wrote a piece in The Guardian last year. Uh, well, it which, didn't be all. Yeah. Oh, OK, but I want you to talk about your fit Yes, of yes, rage yes, yes. Rage is very you interesting. You managed to contain yeah. it for apparently very good reasons. You said yeah. you were scared. I don't believe that. But nonetheless, you... you, you, you I was you, strategic. You, yes, strategic. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So you, you've decided you had better things to be doing than going out there and being injured by... Yes. By one thing or another. Or by one thing or another. But... Was it, was it Donald Trump? Well, uh, yeah, or middle age. One of the, <laughs> a happy coincidence. Or major success. Or success and just getting fed up that it, you know, getting fed up. It was also getting fed up. Um, you remember that woman in the Trump march in Washington says, how much longer do I have to protest this same old shit, you know, on the, on the placard? And that feeling that was there in 2016, that sense of disbelief that we couldn't, we, we, whatever that we is, couldn't believe or, or, that this had happened, that, that felt so keenly as a defeat of everything that had been fought for over the last 30 years in terms of equality in, 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 in the workplace and lives and whatever. And then comes this Baba monster with the ginger hair or the orange face or whatever. And, and uh, uh, just, sorry, I was suddenly worried that I was going to be anti-redheaded there, you know, as soon as you, that is, I want to clarify that absolutely no is not the case. No one else no. He's a one-off. Yeah, we call like it hair, whatever. Let's, yeah. in, let's all insult yeah. Trump. Let's be anti-hair. And um, 
So then this came along, and I, I don't know, the, the day after the election, there were a series of elections that people woke up to difficult, difficult or interesting or unexpected news with Brexit and with Trump. You wake up in the morning and there it is. And it's not, and the liberal press failed miserably, miserably to foresee it. The, uh, they, uh, and they, because they didn't understand the atavistic, uh, unexpressible, difficulty of the people who were voting for right-wing policies. So you can say that in retrospect, but on the morning after the election, you just go, oh, it was just really, it was like having the flu. Mm -hmm. And then everybody goes out and marches, and then you have this big swinging feeling that, oh my God, it has all been for nothing. Mm -hmm. Now that's a feeling. Because as we walk down the street and as we do this, that, or the other, we find that we have more parity in, 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 in professionally and, and somehow personally. And yet it's misogyny that spikes us like that. So the rage is in response to whatever that misogyny is that we find so incontrovertible and so deeply wounding and personal that, we just that, that it's all somehow insurmountable or insoluble or not accessible to public reasoned discourse. You see, I like so it's accessible to, to fiction, all right. Yes, I like, you know? I like to think that you're sitting there while we're all in a rage out here and sort of being completely inarticulate about it because we're so raging, that you're at home thinking these sort of thoughts that are sorting it all out. And then I read a piece of yours in The Guardian last year where you basically the, one of the lines in the middle was misogyny, I thought, now ruled the world. And I thought, my God, she has no answers. This is... You see, misogyny is in itself rage. These are rages. Mm. These are, you know, this is an answering rage. It's not, great, we didn't yeah, start it. There's a great line in that piece where you talked about the Me Too movement helping a little. It was as though some magnetic bond between women and men's badness had suddenly stopped working, which is a great line. Thank you. Um, but Anne, there's also nuance. I mean, a lot of us would also step back a bit and say, no, let's just step back a bit, because there's a lot of good men around. Well, that's also in that article yes, there. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, uh, uh, about where institutionalised uh, discrimination sets in, and unconscious bias, and the way that men bond together in a way that gets less comfortable the more men there are, and the, few, the, the, the women then get fewer and fewer. Because the more men get together, the less women are going to be involved. You know, there's some ideal mix there. Um, and that's, it seems to me, you know, basically that happens when kids are around eight or nine and they start running around the playground in larger groups of, of boys. So that's that kind of, oh, you're not going to play with girls, are you? So that's quite a grown-up, relatively, misogyny. Mm -hmm. But the narcissistic misogyny that Trump represents is much earlier, much more infantile, much more toxic. And that's the one that, that, that is the one that gives you the pang of despair, mm. that you have been in some way personally attacked by a man who is nothing to you and whose, whose opinions, you know, are 3,000 miles away. Um, but but the, that, 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 that's where that pang comes from, to, for me anyway. How he gets away I, I, yeah, with so much, or God worth, I think, and it's sexual as well, you know. Yes, but the liberal press, I think, just couldn't believe that people would vote for this. Just as my little pathetic defence. Yeah, it, um, it's just when you, just to finish that point, it's when things go wrong for people, they revert to some age or other, 
And most men are not eight, and they're not eight months old. Mm. Most men are grand. Yes. Most men are grown up, and they have the ability to move and change and realize and understand. It's just when you cross, when, when life crosses them. <laughs> now, in the book, there's a, there's a, a young academic slash journalist uh, who is described uh, as um, having a flourishing intelligence, but near stupidity, uh, which I took personally. <laughs> but anyway, she, she is, wants to write about Catherine, and she's interviewing Nora, the daughter, about Catherine and Catherine's life, and she tries to portray her as this great feminist hero and writes about what men do. And in a letter which Nora writes to this girl, Holly Devan, uh, Nora lets fly. And I think it's very interesting. It, it deals with the, with, the, with the nuance that uh, I keep talking about in Anne's work, um, in our approach to men and those unconscious spaces in between that she is so good at reaching into. Yeah, I'm really interested in grievance at the moment, but it's, we have to be careful being interested in grievance because people can get very aggrieved. Um, Holly Devan has written to me to say that she has decided my mother was a great Irish feminist. She was a great Irish disaster, I want to tell Holly. She was a great piece of anguish, madness and sorrow. And by the way, she wasn't Irish at all. This interpretation is besides very unfair to Boyd O'Neill, who's the guy she attacked. He did what might be argued what men often do and she responded the way women almost never respond. She turned him into a fantasy and then she attacked this fantasy. And this was very wrong because Boyd was a real person made of flesh and blood. Or she took an old heart and confused it with a new one. A theme I do not elaborate to Holly Devan. She blamed him for everything when he did just one thing, and even that was small. Holly writes back to say that every man who kills a woman or insults a woman or defiles a woman is attacking some fantasized version of a woman in his head. This is what men do, which I find so depressing. What about the ones they love, I want to ask, or is that still allowed? Well, she's older, the, the, the narrator is older than me by 10 years. I would have a, possibly a different answer than that. To, you know, I might myself say that love is a bit of a fantasy in its own way or involves fantasy as well. But that's not what Nora said. That's what you would say, though? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's in the same zone, really. And do you think your marriage is a, is, is a fantasy? Is Martin a fantasy? Did you, oh, you said whom marriage she's very, there. Whom she's very happily, monogamously married to. I do not know. Dear. And where are we now? In, in, because I know in the last few years, you know, and during your, your time as, a, as, as the laureate of fiction, uh, we've had an explosion of female success in this yeah. country. Uh, Sally Rooney. Yeah, uh, there's this really sweet moment where the kind of urgency of what has been waiting to say meets, <laughs> collides very wonderfully with the ability of people to say it. And, uh, and a great moment of freedom and uh, a joyful expression, I think, actually. It's just amazing. Have we made it... Have, do you think we've reached critical mass now? Have we made it past the point of having to worry about about the male canon and what they think of women writers and all that. I do get worried. Um, I, I do uh, get worried that uh, 
I don't know if I get worried or not. Sorry to be so inarticulate. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about how crowds work because there are two things that fed into the gender work I did when I was the laureate. One, most importantly, was Waking the Feminists in 2016 when, uh, uh, here we are in Liberty Hall, in 2019, the, 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 as you know, the Abbey Theatre w w failed to run in more than one out of 10 plays by women in their commemorative uh, year of, uh, their 1916 commemorative year. And that was, that, that was an artistic revolution. That was a revolution by the artists, basically, when they stood up and said, this cannot, cannot be right. This, uh, and the work that was then done statistically showing that the more money an institution got, the more self-important or important or nationally important it felt itself to be, the less it included women. So there was an idea that artistic importance and female exclusion were somehow uh, uh, allied in people's heads. So you could give women money for community projects, but you couldn't uh, put them on the highest stage in the land. Put it that but more or less, you know. So then the repeal movement happened, which was a different style. It was connected with a different style of movement. And it, it happened to a huge extent online with the availability for women to have a platform for expression that was a mosaic, it was a crowd expression. It happened on Twitter, on Facebook or whatever. Of course, individual voices were hugely important and they were, they were on the radio and they were in, in print and they swayed the crowd. But the crowd is already talking to each other. And so that's a new kind of, that's a new kind of conversation that we, we, we have now. And you could say that the female crowd is very, very powerful in a way that, uh, that, that has put the, 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 what's happening, what happened with men online was a bit depressing early on. There was so much trolling, so much negativity, so much difficulty was being expressed by men online. So I don't think that anything's over. Um, and I think if Trump is an example of anything, it is how easy a backward step is. Um, but also, I think we have to be tender of the, of, of, of the population as a whole. And we also have to talk about masculinities and we, uh, we have to honour and treasure our male writers as well. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? It is, you know, yeah. While there's a revolution ongoing, which there really is uh, yeah. on the side of women, it's, it's kind of very hard to all be minding the feelings of what we regard well, as you the... want to, you want to, yeah, well, minding the feelings, yeah, no, it is a very emotional space, all of it. Maybe we should just ignore everything and do whatever we like. <laughs> uh, it is a highly emotional space and a quite a dangerous one as well because it's the same thing that produced the right wing, this, this, mm. this very easily emotional, easy, very easy to get a pile in on, online, very mm. easy to say something that you're pleased with and then... 30 seconds later say, oh, that was a bit rough. Yeah. Very, very easy uh, yeah. uh, to, to see a wind go through the online space. And to feel that, that however much you push back against that, you're being told, no, you're simply feeding them. This is, this is strengthening them. You know, you see it in the Trump movement in the States. Yeah, and I just personally, I feel that it's a very good time to go back to, to making more cohesive uh, pieces of work, you know? That, that, that the novel is, an, is, is again, necessary in a do you, way. Do you feel yourself becoming more, 
more empowered, in a sense, by what's happening now? Do you feel yourself being driven to speak out more about this? I mean, you have done it, but do you, are you going to go back into your black box? I, 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 um, and my black box. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's what she calls her writing zone. I, I never felt disempowered because I always yeah. had the page, you know, so I'm, mm. I'm always very happy that, you know, touch wood, I'll, I'll have an, you know, I woke up this morning with two short stories and, and then they were gone by lunchtime, but I, I did think that they, that they might come back, you know, and that, that, that that's what I can do. And when, when I say I'm a reluctant feminist, I'm not a career feminist. Mm. Now, feminism isn't, is a career for very few people. Uh, I'm, I'm a novelist and an artist, and my, and my job is to make art. Hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not terribly me. happy with and that. I just, we, come back and we need, we need say, another night well, to go into Why that. did you say this? <laughs> I said a lot. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Let's talk about mothers, yeah. which are a huge feature of your okay. work. And at some point you said people's mothers are big to them, maybe writers are better at admiring that. But they feature so much in your I know. Work. And I'm in the middle of it, something I go, oh, here we are again. Yeah. What is that? I think that, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, it's such, it's such, a, it's such a happy and problematic uh, thing, the mother-child relationship. And that, that's something that when I'm making something up, I'm very much in that zone. I'm in that happy place, you know. So, uh, so yeah, you see, mommy we, is always possible there. Yes. You see, we, we, I, I grew up with the, the, the words of, of, of the poet Larkin in my ears, which is the, about the pram and the hall and the death of creative children being the death of creativity and leave the man alone to do his important work. Yes. So, I, I, I want to word this in a very sensitive fashion because I don't like saying to women, how do you do all that and have children at the same time? Which is the most terrible thing to ask anybody. I've seen them the other day dressed in rags. <laughs> yes, but, but it is interesting. Did you get a bigger hole for the pram or how did you accomplish Yeah, this? well, I mean, long before I had children, I decided that the best way to proceed is to pretend that you're a man. And one of the best ways of pretending that you're a man is not to care about stuff. The gift of carelessness to say, oh, it'll be grand. This child running around in a nappy with everything on its face. And going back again, even before all of that, to seeing how much, say, girls care about their leaving cert. <laughs> how, how, how conscientiousness is built into the female psyche. Because if you don't get 800 point, points, I don't know, the world is going to explode. There's going to be some astonishing catastrophe. And if you, and this catastrophe will also happen if you're not wearing the right clothes while getting 800 points in your leave insert. And it will also happen if you don't have your nails the right color. And if the, the, the other girl says something mean to you or the guy isn't interested, any number of parameters. And you have to wonder why, uh, I wondered why that catastrophe was so imminent. Um, and what happens if you let it go a little bit. I tell you what happens when you let it go. I had a Swiss journalist come to my house when I had a toddler on my knee, and you know when, when children are actually taller than you somehow. And so this 
toddler was on my knee. I, I'd written a book and a Swiss journalist came and asked me questions and I was so pleased with myself for having had written a book while I had this toddler on my knee. I said, sorry about the state of the house. He says, well, that's all right. So then I read in, in, in my... <laughs> in the resulting article that one Irish writer is a genius and other Irish writer is a genius and then this third Irish writer doesn't tidy her house. <laughs> and I tell no lie. It's, it's actually happened. Yes, I tell, yes, I could find it. Anyway, this actually happened. Uh, or this one Irish writer is this and one Irish writer is this and one Irish writer does not tidy her house. So then when I'd have photographers coming or something, I'd say, would you tidy within the frame? Whatever, you know, whatever happens. And they'd be looking at me like, but this is very interesting intellectual mess, all these books all over your stairs. And I'd say, please, you do. Because whatever you do in that gendered space, you're gonna, somebody's gonna complain. But I had a rule for many years. I mean, this doesn't mean that my house is a wreck or I'm a complete dirtbag, but I did have a rule that I wouldn't clean the car when I could be writing a short story instead. That if I ever found myself out at a Hoover saying, why am I not writing a short story? Uh, apart from the fact that there's very little money in cleaning your car, um, <laughs> and the mortgage would be beckoning. And um, so, but I remember when I used to say this as one of my little lines, there would always be one woman in the hall who'd like, oh God, well, at least my car's clean, you know? <laughs> Hands up. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like that. But so it's not just about housekeeping or whatever. It's about uh, that fine carelessness that Browning talked about, <laughs> that fine carelessness of not being over-involved in the small stuff. But I mean, then I do, you know, I, I say this publicly and then I go home and I go, oh. Did you have to learn to be careless? I did learn to be careless in some aspects. Because there. you were a little moralizing nerd back in your teens, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, was quite, I was quite moral, all right, yeah. You were. Well, I, I mean, wasn't. I was, I was quite verbally moral. She won a scholarship to some Canadian university. I did, at her school in Canada, yeah. Yes, and tell us about your, how you took them to task there. Oh, the now the English teacher. Uh, his man is still my friend, Theo, and he was uh, teaching a poem by Keats called La Belle Dame Sans Merci. And the line in the poem was, she looked at me as she did love and made sweet moan. Now, I had done that poem for my leaving cert, and I didn't think there was anything rude about it. And um, Theo said, <laughs> I thought it was Keats. I thought it was poetry. And Theo said, it was, well, we all know what that means, he said, uh, meaning whatever he meant. And I went up to him, artist, I said, you have ruined Keats for me. <laughs> Meaning you have debased and defiled the whole art of poetry. And I was kind of a quiver. And, uh, and he kind of looked at me. And we got on very well ever since. But I do recognize it sometimes in teenagers, you know, how wonderfully moral they are and sometimes a little bit Puritan. Indeed. And note how she did win the scholarship to that university. I think she was about 16. I you? was, yeah. Yeah, 16. So she really was a little nerd. Um, I really wasn't. But she was reading Joyce at 14. I was, that's true. Um, and, and really, we're going to skip all that because she was clearly a prodigy who was let go her allowed. own way by her mother who had run out of energy to do anything with her and just decided just to... Uh, no. but Your I know. Your mother was probably a bit, a bit careless as well. No, wasn't she? she wasn't. She taught she me not? how to read. <laughs> she did. 
She taught me how to read when I was three. Did she? She did. Oh. She wasn't at all careless. I because in fact, I mean, she had four other children to, to yes. deal with, but she, she, she did. Um, you went to Trinity. I did. You signed she up. She didn't really run out of energy. She, uh, she met an immovable force. <laughs> Poor woman. <laughs> yes. So she went. So she went to Trinity after she came back from Canada, and she signed up to the Players uh, Theatre in Trinity, sporting a poncho she had made herself. So she wasn't just a little moral nerd. She was also a, was that crochet or knitted? Or no, it was a blanket. Was a blanket? <laughs> with a hole in it. Anyway, <laughs> with a hole in it. Martin, her husband, spotted her there. He was in Players at the time, and he, uh, she auditioned for him, and what happened? What happened? What? <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, yes, he wrote, he wrote in his notes, he said bingo. He wrote bingo on his notes. He knew immediately that you were the one. I don't know, you'd have to ask him. But, uh, no, but wait, wait, he knew I was right for the part that he was casting at the oh, time. Oh, that kind of bingo. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I just saw he thought, oh, <laughs> she's the one. What did you think when you saw him? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you began to write ghastly poems. I'm actually quoting her here now. And uh, your siblings got you a typewriter for your 21st birthday, which was really nice. Yeah, actually, they're claiming they didn't get to do that now. So oh, are they? Yeah, well, I, I oh. never, I'm never in charge of who remembers anything yes. in, in my family. Because I'm the youngest, so all the older ones remember what was really going on. Yes, I think that's very common in, in large Yeah, families. but I mean, I, can, I, could, I can produce the evidence and say, look, OK, this happened, here it is. And they say, no, no, that didn't happen. You're too young, you wouldn't remember. Yeah, how would you know? Um, and you then went off to the University of East Anglia, which I is a did, bit yeah. of a factory for, for, for good writing. It, it was very early days in the University of East Anglia at that time. It was, uh, and there was always a good Irish writer there. Uh, uh, Deirdre Martin had gone the year before me, and Glenn pa actually, they, Deirdre Martin and Glenn Patterson, then me, um, in 1985, 86. No, 86, 87. It was just a room with nine people in it talking about each other's work once a week. Uh, we'd find Malcolm Bradbury in his office. He, he, he never knew he was supposed to teach. <laughs> and somebody and his wife would get him out the door. Look at that, this is the old style. His wife would get him out the door on a Monday when the workshop was, but he wouldn't know why he was there. <laughs> then somebody would tell him, oh, it's a workshop time, and he'd go up. And he'd sit and look benignly while we criticised each other's work to, 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 to better or worse effect, I think. Um, and it was very low-key. Um, good, good. I, I, I like it for being, I like it for being low-key. I think what Malcolm had was an eye for a good uh, uh, sentence maker or writer at the application stage. And that's why there's so many good writers that came out of that course. But you were kind of miserable there. I was. I was, yeah, no, I was very alone. I mean, I was, I was surrounded by these very nice people. I was going to say these very nice English people, but that would sound discriminatory. <laughs> they were very nice English people. How many of them vote Brexit now, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know if they would have voted Brexit, but when English people are nice, they're very nice. Yes. And, um, uh, and very supportive, and we were all working away. But I, I, I sort of tanked, I tanked creatively there. Yeah. Yes. And 
so you came back and, and, and weirdly, you wrote three short stories, which were then published. Typity type, type, as soon, type. Yeah, as soon as you kind of were liberated from the... Yeah, I went up to Anna McCarrick, typity type, type, type. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? Yes. Yeah, it was great. And then, for some reason, you joined RT. Well, you, you joined I joined RT team by accident because my mother, who had not run out of energy, oh. <laughs> was a she great woman for clipping and saving the ads out of the newspapers. And I was in Anna McCarrick writing my three short stories where this clipping, or they'd come in envelopes with dates on them and nothing else. There was no signature or anything. And it was an ad for a producer director in Irish television, which was a bit of a reach for someone who had no, jo no work experience. And so I applied and, and got it by accident. And you ended up working on what actually is kind of an iconic, I hate that word, but anyway, it kind of did become iconic Nighthawks. Yes, we had a big, uh, chaotic, it was, people may or may not remember the, the beginnings of Channel 4 and how exciting that was, that space could be anarchic and creative and you could say anything. And of course, actually... And it was live, wasn't it? And it was live. So we did yes. something like a mini Channel 4 on Nighthawks, yes. yeah. And there was black humour in it. You could see that it was, you could see the chaos. But also, and that made it tremendously entertaining because you actually didn't know what was going to happen next. No, neither did we. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. We now, never I, fell off the air. We never fell off the air. And, and did some, actually, some serious work. I mean, a few... We really did. That happened, too. Important stories came out of it. Uh, important stories in a journalistic sense. Mm. Uh, yes, and people do hone in on that. Uh, um, I think the space was used but politically in order to make those stories happen mm. because it was a place where politicians felt they could say things that, would, uh, that could be a little bit dangerous, you know. Yes, but it was very widely watched. But I think more, more than the political stuff was the, uh, the freedom of it. That, that, that people in two-channel land remember it really well, like, oh, my God, there was something on late at night that she just mm. couldn't, you Absolutely. didn't know what the hell it was. It was really very, very different. I can't emphasise that enough to anybody who's not familiar with it. And Anna's going to not like what I'm going to come up with next because it all went... <laughs> it, it, it became very hard, didn't it? It did become very hard, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it did. I was in my, I suppose, late 20s at that stage. I was really quite young to be, in, in fact, I became serious producer of the show. So I think I came to the, uh, the limit of my precocities there. <laughs> so, you know, so I was a young one uh, trying to, you know, I used to call it riding the, the iron hippopotamus. It's like every night, the whole thing going on, studio cameras, the whole thing. This had repercussions. And this had repercussions that, that Cathy wants to talk about. <laughs> Just very briefly, um, because you, 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 were, you, you became burnt out, but in a rather serious way. I did. I, yeah, I burnt out. Um, and I, uh, I didn't fall apart. I just fell. I sort of plummeted. There was no shattering. It was more like a, a kind of switch being thrown. So, uh, yeah, so I had to get fixed, get switched back. So I think it's important to say here that she was booked, she booked into a facility, as she calls <laughs> it. She sat in the bed and couldn't unbutton her shirt. So she really was wiped. And she may have been there, what, two, three weeks? I don't know. I was there either two or three weeks. But you found your way back. Everybody then. crying in the hall. Yeah. Why are they all crying? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I found my way. Yeah, I love the way people model the narratives of our lives. Okay, you, you, well, you found well, your way back. You, you Sorry, tell me to then, what happened? I don't know. I, I found my way back. 
I did, I, I, uh, okay, ask me a question, Catherine. <laughs> you were there for two or three weeks. You and were I'd be white. You were burnt out. Yes. Yes. She really doesn't want to talk about this, but she did talk about it recently on another, on another show. I'm so that's actually why I'm just not letting her go with this. Yes, they were taking Also, and taking. she is one of the most solid people I know. And I want people to know that this is, this can happen. The yeah. media can use you up or any job you're in where you are being sort of run off and on, on the air. And Actually, you know, you when it. I was in RT, that was the beginning of a short contract work. And, and the media was changing from the old style that Liberty Hall was used to of people having jobs for life mm. to short and sharp freelance life that has now fragmented so much that people are working for free for the internet. They're working for free for the internet. Yes. And uh, so that was the beginning of that. Uh, knowledge that you could use creative people whatever way you wanted to because they were so stupid and so keen that they wanted to do it anyway. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you can, you can be overworked, you can be young, you can be mismanaged or you can be unconscious of, of how your talent is being uh, used to other people's benefit and not to your own. Uh, so your brain and body kicked up, basically. Yeah, no, I ran out of adrenaline, you know, that cortisol thing. Yeah, I ran out yeah. of adrenaline. And I made some decisions after, after all of that happened. And as I was, I, I don't know, finding my way back, sticking myself back together again. I, I don't know, climbing the rope back to the world, uh, whatever way you want to style it. Um, well, you decided to get out of broadcasting. I decided to get out of broadcasting, but in fact, and this is another thing that I sometimes advise people to do, I decided to stay in broadcasting and save enough money for my escape. Ah. That's a different thing. That's a very, I'm going to tell all my daughters. That. Yeah. So I decided to build myself a plank from one life to another. So I decided to stay another two years and build enough, get enough of a nest egg together that I could, in those days, you could get a little flat. Yes. And uh, then, I, then I started writing full time. But it wasn't, when I talk about this, and one of the reasons that I don't, and I've given you a hard time here, but one of the, the <laughs> giving a journalist a hard time. I warned, but you're still giving me a hard time. <laughs> but one of the reasons I, I don't mind, uh, you know, I, sometimes this, this gets turned into a narrative of somebody who had a breakdown and then was cured by winning the Booker Prize. <laughs> Or getting, or, or getting married. Or getting married. Or that you're fixed by one thing or another. And in fact, you're more fixed by going for a walk every day or being nice to yourself than by, uh, you know, or, or, or looking for help or doing any number of ordinary therapeutic, taking any number of therapeutic measures rather than saying, oh, I'm going to be an artist or making big decisions about your, your, your lives, you know. And it's the, it's the little, small, everyday things that I believe really accumulate in, in the long run. Because you don't change your life if you go for a walk, but you do change your life if you go for a walk every day. You do, you're taking control in a certain way. Aren't well, you? it's just good stuff all the time. Clearing your head. Uh, but you did marry Martin quite did, shortly yeah. after that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's your first listener. That's so much trouble yes. now already. Um, he, he, it's, it's, um, you read to him first. He's the first person that listens to you, and she says he has 50 kinds of silence. Yeah, one of them is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you say? I say, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. And he goes, hmm. I said, what do you mean, hmm? <laughs> so, and then you, you read something. I mean, it, way back in the day, I'd write something, and then I'd, I think it was completely different. 
And of course, it sounded exactly the same. And uh, so he went on strike briefly for a while. I said, no, I'm not listening to any more of this. It's all this, I, I can't tell. But that force, yeah, you need somebody really so solid to be able to take all of that. I mean, I have creative writing students and I go, okay, we'll just, we will, we'll, we'll structure this in some way. But when you're living with a writer, there is no structure. And so you have to be really robust, yes. And can I just say one of the glories of Anne's book of actors is that I learned so many things through Catherine's taste in reading. One of the things I did not know was Joseph Stalin uh, got all his ministers to bark the Blue Danube after dinner like dogs. He did. I read a biography yeah. of, his, of Stalin many years ago written by his daughter. And it was a kind of a mad artefact in its way. She had an opinion that Stalin... His problem was that he was a Sagittarian on the cusp with Capricorn. <laughs> I said, my father was a seeker, the archer, you know. And I think, okay, that's one way of describing it. <laughs> but uh, I don't know where, if they, you know, everyone has a little Stalin phase. And that and, was and yeah, it was very, because what Anne says in the book uh, is that, um, he, he, so there was all this stuff about being on the cusp of Capricorn and everything. And then uh, the daughter thinks, but the 40 million dead, you know, um, and this summed up her mother, which I thought was the most fantastic way of summarising a character, how irritating it must have been to have been listening to the stuff about the dogs, but the, the ministers barking and the, all the rest. But that's an interesting little factoid, all the yes, same. I, did, I mean, yes. I went back to looking at how Carrie Fisher looked at Debbie Reynolds, so the couple on the, on the cover of the book, and Carrie Fisher in Wishful Drinking, she says that her mother, Debbie, was a very nice woman, suggested to her that she have a baby with one of her husbands. I mean, one of her own husbands. I mean, she was married for the third or fourth time to <laughs> Deborah Reynolds, and she said to her daughter, Carrie Fisher, say the husband was called Michael. She said, you, you should have a baby with Michael. It would have lovely eyes. I think, oh, okay. Yeah, it's another, another kind of so mother. That's a, another kind of mother, but a kind of somehow a ditzier version than, than Catherine O'Dell ever was. Now, and I want to ask you, just because we're coming towards the end of this part, but I want to ask you about the writing process. Towards the end of, the, of, of Actress, Nora describes her own books, because Nora, the daughter, has become a novelist, in which she says the characters are slightly nondescript. They rarely have sex, and they certainly do not attack each other. They just realise things and feel a little sad. <laughs> and I thought, that's you. No, it's not me. <laughs> They rarely have it's sex. It's always much more interesting than that, but they don't attack one or they rarely have sex. Uh, well, they, 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 in this, there's an amount of sex. I want to clear up the bad sex line early. I, somebody read my stories, an American man who's quite grumpy, and he said that the, the, there's a story called The Bad Sex Weekend, and he said it should just, that should describe all my stories. And at the time I said, uh, well, you know, it's not... My characters don't have bad sex, they just have great sex with the wrong people. Um, but that was a, a, long, a while ago and, and quite naive. Now, bad sex is, has, a, has a much different definition now. Mm. Uh, um, it, 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 it's a conversation about consent, but it also seems to mean rough sex now in a way that, uh, you know, I, how stupid I was back in the day thinking that, that was a bad sex weekend compared to what... what you're reading now about what people yeah. uh, have to uh, recover from or enjoy one way or the other. Enjoy, yes. Yeah. It is, it, that, is, that is extremely worrying and I think a lot of women have that on their minds and maybe a lot of men, I don't know, but I think, 
I think the, the pornography thing has a huge amount to do with it. That may not be a, a, a popular view, but I really do think that there is a that, that there is a thing in there that is it's almost permissible, you know. Anyway, um, we're coming to the end, as I say, and, and I want, just want to ask you one last thing about about this this whiplash thing in a writer's life, where you're in the black box, absolutely immersed in your story and in these amazing characters, and suddenly. The publishing, the publishing tour comes along. Oh, my God. What is that like? It's like getting the flu. Yeah. It really is like getting the flu. You, you go around thinking, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm coming down with something. I wonder what it is. I think I have a bit of a cough. <laughs> and then you say, oh, no, I have a book out. That's what's wrong. <laughs> it is amazing. And then, you, and then there's one day where you say, God, what a fool I was to write that book. Now everyone's reading it. And, uh, uh, and yeah, and, and, you, and you think, you also think how foolish you've been for three or four years to be in this fantasized or imagined world and, and, and how profoundly odd and foolish that is as a way of life. Well, <laughs> you just think, what? When I, when, I, when I came in this evening, I was saying to Anne, I said, wow, this is true. She's had the most extraordinary uh, array of reviews for this book. Um, and I said to her, I said, isn't this fantastic? And she said, yeah. But she said, someone always tries to pull you down. And she named two that just might. And I just thought, that is an extraordinary way to live, to come out of a black box after that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Now, I mean, when I write about authority and I write about creativity, I, 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 the, the weird thing is judgment. I mean, that is a weird thing. And some people are much judgier than others, you know? <laughs> and they say, what do you think? Is she any good? <laughs> like, you know, surely uh, the, the, the reviews must be wrong in some way or, or that a more refined uh, human being would find... It, it, it lacking in some significant way. And that judginess is really strange, and you, you, you don't really write to be judged. You, the judgment is a kind of necessary fire that you have to go through to get through to the readership. And I realized this very strongly after the booker, that the readers were, were, were new to me, that, that I had more readers than I had judges. <laughs> and, that the, and the connection between the writer and the reader circumvents this feeling of, of, of that, that, it, that the book happens in your head, and the judgment that happens out in the world. Like the book clubs can be kind of judgy too, but the first thing that happens isn't judgment. It's, it's a much more close uh, and connected thing, whatever the reader and the page. And that is something I... Uh, treasure. Um, when I was asking Anne about this this flu that the cold for the, the publishing tour cold, and I said, "How do you deal with that?" And she talked about the walks and things. But also, I was I suddenly remembered something she said on Desert Island Discs a few weeks ago, which is, was actually a particularly good episode of it, where she was asked about the, what luxury items she would take. Uh, to her desert islands. What did you say? I, I said some very, very good quality sheets, please. Cotton yeah. sheets. Over 600 count thread or nothing, yeah, she yeah, said. Yeah, no, no, go home. Yes. 600 or go home. Or, <laughs> yeah. She's a very serious woman, as you can see. <laughs> Look, um, that is, I think we're going to call it, we, 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 we'll, we'll yeah. stop the conversation here and we'd love Q &A. you to get involved. So... Would anybody like to ask Anne a question? You can ask anything you like, so long as it's nice. <laughs> you actually don't have to be nice. You see, I got away with a lot there, even uh. though I know she was looking at me <laughs> in a 
hostiles. Lady in the red jumper, I think. Pink, maybe. I'm a bit colourblind. Hello, my name is Ruth. Um, I'm just interested when you mention your husband's Fifty Shades of Silence. Um, and uh, what I would love, to, what I'd be interested to find out is, as a creative who works with words and um, brings so many stories to life with your own words and then is invited to talk and talk and talk and regale about your stories and your own life, what part does silence play in your day? as opposed to just the silence received from someone else? That's a, a fabulous question. Um, well, you know, sometimes you, you realise that you haven't talked to anyone for a very long time, but you can't really maintain that for long because uh, you can't be silent with your children, and so they're still at home. But I went away a long time before I had kids, and I went away for three weeks, and I talked to nobody at all in a, a house by Glen Carr. And I was woken up in the middle of the night by the loudest sheep cough I've ever heard. <laughs> it was like it happened inside my brain. And then, and, and, and I didn't speak to anyone for three weeks. And it was just gorgeous, except a Jehovah's Witness who came to the door. Um, and then when I came back to Dublin and I got off the bus, and I started, I met someone in the street and I was talking to them and I was completely monastic and zen. I was full of love and compassion. It didn't last, but it was great. <laughs> and uh, I how recommend it. How long it. did it last? I don't know. Five minutes. I met them outside Grogan's. <laughs> Anybody else? Over here to our left. Um, and I'm dying to read this book. My, my mother was an actress. Four sisters and a niece. Is that Paul? It is. Hello, we're Paul. actresses. Yes. And well done on the actress thing, by the way. Do, I, do you mind if I tell people who, are, who you are? Yeah. No, no I don't. No, I have no problem. <laughs> There's a Cusack in the house. Oh. Um, and well done on the, the actress thing. Thank they you. They all describe themselves as actresses. Oh, yes. That, oh. Well, that's a bit retro now. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is that um, I worked with Anne. Um, Anne was my boss. On, on night Nighthawks. A woman rang was... up once and said, are you his assistant? And I said, no, I'm his boss. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, she was wonderful because it, what happened was you had a lot of frightened people working together. And then you had suddenly Anne was the boss. And she was frightened as well, which was kind of unusual. <laughs> And out of that came huge creativity. It was an immensely creative, yeah, very You know, strong. we were all, we, we had nothing to lose. Yeah. And that was wonderful. And I really enjoyed um, you being my boss. Thank you, Paul. Aww. It was a very unselfconscious kind of, we were Egypts. <laughs> and you were young. Yeah. And we were young, yeah. And full of energy and, and adrenaline and everything. Um, we're very honoured to have you in the house, Mr. Cusack. Person over here. Hi, um, thank you. Um, I wonder if you could say a bit more about what motivated you to write this particular book. Why this character, these themes, this particular novel? Uh, I, I'm always terrified of, of, of analysing all of that, I think, because I can never remember. Um, and I, then I make something up and it sounds true, but I, I don't actually remember how one word or sentence starts begging the other word or sentence that turns into this character or not, you know? So, um, but I had every, every, between every book I would research in the theatre, I uh, was 
thinking about Siobhan McKenna, I was thinking about iconic Irish actresses, Irish figures. There was a scene in Fanny and Alexander that moved me completely, this film by Ingmar Bergman, uh, where the actors are on stage having a party and I just, I loved the romance of it so much and it was a romantic thing and I thought it was too romantic for me and I loved the tawdriness of it and uh, how it's all held together by sticky tape. And I had worked in the theatre as, as a girl, uh, briefly. Uh, I was surrounded by people who thought, I was surrounded by people who wanted to act um, and they didn't want to do anything else. It was quite hard to find people to direct because acting was the thing that everybody wanted to do in college. So, performance. Actually, also, maybe when I'm getting my patter going, I'll say, I like reading the book. It's quite performative, what I do. Um, the prose is quite performative. And so I'm talking, writing about performance suited me very well. I like getting something that does three things at once. And this does three things at once sometimes. You also read deeply, and I think, didn't you? You read, you read uh, Hilary Fannon's book. Um, the Weight of Love. Yeah, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, before no, this. Her, her, her. Yeah, no, there were two things. Palm Boyd yeah. did a thing about, which was called Shame, and she, her mother was briefly an actress and was on screen, in the, and, and it was on the screen in the Abbey. And, and she's, the director asked her to smile, and the mother smiled this really quite gammy smile, and, and never recovered from the mortification of smiling, that gammy smile in the, in the Savoy cinema or wherever it was in this, in this movie. But also, uh, Hilary's uh, account of her mother getting, going out into the darkness to work. Uh, that sounds odd, but her mother was a singer and an entertainer, and she, she was on one of the early, on the, on the first days of Telefichere, and so I stole that and, and acknowledged it in the, in, you know, the glamour of Telefichere and the glamour of having your mother on the telly. Yes. Going into school the next day, was that your mother? Because the, in, the in-depth look at theatre and the old fit-ups um, are, is, is in, in that book, actually, there is so much of interest in it, quite apart from the, the plot, yeah. obviously, and the characters. I mean, Annie McMaster appears in The Green Road, mm. because, and so it's a little carry-on from that, that the mother was uh, in the, the night that war was declared, she was watching Annie McMaster and Othello um, somewhere in County Clare. In fact, they were in Chewham um, that night, and I was very interested in how actors managed war. <laughs> Not very well. I know you look at um, the, the post-war films, uh, a lot of the actors in, in, in the RAF movies were he war heroes and, and others were just faking it. It's quite an interesting intersection around actors and war. It is. I certainly wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> is there anybody else there who would like to ask a question? Hi, I really loved Actress. I finished it this morning, actually. Oh, God. Um, I was curious if you could talk about the decision to have the address of the book be to Nora's husband um, in a novel that's so about a mother-daughter relationship. Why did you choose to have uh, her addressing her husband? As yeah, I get into these kind of things, and then I, I, I try and back out of them, and I, and I just failed to not do that. I start, you know, and it becomes essential to the book. Um, there, was a, there was a chapter in The Green Road where I realized I, I was going to do it from a, a choral voice, a wee voice. And, and I, I resisted that fury. I said, oh, no, please, no. But it stayed in because it was the right thing to do. The, the you in, in this book is something that's becoming more current, and it is a kind of intimate 
close uh, subject of um, tense or a form of address. So I wanted to uh, establish and, and maintain that sense of uh, an intimacy that was so natural that it couldn't be couldn't be taken out into the into a, a different form of dress. So that you is the lover you, and that I think Marguerite Dura does it. Maybe I must look at it in Hiroshima Mon Amour, and uh, 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 I must check it out. I'll check it out, and then I'll have a big theory, and I'll pretend that I knew all along. <laughs> uh, but but it is it it it, it is. I, I had been interested in the fact that nobody wrote about marriage in a way that was uh, representative or truthful. I thought, here's something true that no one's saying. Writers and human beings have this great idea that truth is something awful that needs to be conveyed immediately. And it's probably the reader's fault, or not, you know what I mean? But. But so I wanted to write something that I found to be true and to be uh, almost usual, which is how people negotiate long relationships. And it's never, it's so rarely in fiction, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, uh, that's a challenge I'll try now. That's it is, next it up. is a fascinating thing. You very rarely see representations of monogamous marriage. Well, because in the, the readers are all monogamously married and they're looking it. for excitement. Yes. And, uh, and, they, and they're not going to read something they can get at home. <laughs> you know? Okay, I was trying to Some start something them. new there, but it didn't work very <laughs> no, well, sorry, did it? Kathy, what are you yeah. yeah. I, that, I, I, actually, that gave me great comfort, actually, for Nora. Right. Um, I don't know if that was meant to happen. Yeah. But I kind of felt she had a, she had a safe anchor somewhere yeah. all through this story, which, which threatened to be quite disturbing, and in fact is in parts. In fact, she is, uh, well, not to, just to elaborate a little mm. on that, she is the safe anchor for her mother. She is also mm. the safe anchor for her husband. Mm. Um, her her sense of her established sense of herself is almost given to her as a baby in the book she just has it she's just one of those people but the husband is the one who's running around in this as well as the mother they're both and she's the kind of still center of i mean there are many different ways to describe as many ways to describe marriages as there are marriages you know certainly unlike the home life of our own dear queen that's a whole other uh, <laughs> podcast, actually, the poor dear Queen. Um, is there anybody else would like to ask? Lady in the front row here. And it's a beautiful book. And unlike this lady, I started reading it this morning. And I was going to say how many chapters in I am, except I'm reading it on Audible. So I'm an hour or two in. And I'm wondering about the writing process. Has that changed for you now that many people read books by audiobook? And you're narrating it, you're reading it yourself. Is and the one you're listening to the one I narrated myself? Yes. Oh, good. And so I can really tell the bits that you enjoy. I feel like, in fact, that we yeah. now have an intimate relationship spent... and we're friends because you're, 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 you're in my ear on my way here. Oh, okay. And, and uh, to me, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. They're, they're almost, they occupy this new space that's like a radio play more than a book. And yeah. even when you say I'm reading actress, are you really reading it or I'm listening to you? Um, yeah, I mean, this is the first time that I've ever recorded a book and I had regretted that I haven't recorded stuff in the past because people say to me, 
uh, years ago, they used to say, oh, I didn't, uh, it made sense when I heard you read it. And once I had your voice in my head, then I could read the book and be happy, as opposed to going, what, 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 because, uh, you know, the sentences are a little bit uh, idiosyncratic in, in their, you know, the syntax. So um, I, I spent two and a half days in a booth in, in London reading it aloud. And uh, it, it's a kind of fatal error, actually, because sometimes you read something that, that, that I, I've seen it with students in the past, that they read out their work and they suddenly they don't see any of the flaws. <laughs> they just read it and isn't it great and uh, you know so uh, you're not you're not seeing any of it you're, you're, you're getting the fluid version I was just thinking what a gift you are for the, for the modern age of, 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 uh, of writing that you have that, that acting skill which is, was very evident to us when you were reading well the book. writers are always improvising you know mm. and they're always there's always personas involved well you're an amazing woman, Anne Enright. Um, isn't she wonderful? Thank you, Kathy. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Anne Enright, and of course, Cathy Sheridan, and the wonderful audience for coming out on that wet night to Liberty Hall Theatre. Thanks to all the people in Liberty Hall Theatre as well for hosting us. Um, the book is called Actress. It's a fantastic read, so do rush out and get it in all good bookshops. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.